All right, well, I'm excited. Um, we've been talking about um, what we're going to discuss next um, and learn this coming year, study together what our direction would be. And, you know, we've been discussing the names and titles, or that's what we've been discussing, names and titles. You know, we talk about the names of God and who he is. Uh, then we discuss the names of Christ, his titles and names. Then we discussed who we are in Christ, our, the names and titles that he gives us as followers. Um, lots of information. Uh, but it was kind of a worthwhile journey, wasn't it? And we only touched part of it. Um, so I was blessed by that. I hope you were blessed by it. You know, the opportunity to remind ourselves who God is and what Christ is and who we are, all good stuff. Well, you know, now this, this year uh, that we're here, uh, we're moving on to something else, something exciting, I think. Uh, we discussed in December <clears throat> what would be the next chapter, the next study, uh, what would be our focus as we headed into the new year. Where's the journey going to go next? So... I thought it was, we thought it was fitting to just continue our progression. You know, we studied the names of gods, and we started in the Old Testament and worked our way to the New Testament, learning about who God is throughout the whole entirety of Scripture. And so why not start in the first book of the New Testament? Uh, we wanted to work our way through the book of Matthew next. And this will give us a chance to see how the Old Testament is tied to the New Testament. Um... You know, it's actually how the book of Matthew is written. You know, it's, uh, Matthew is kind of writing to the Jewish believers. Uh, it's a book written from a Jewish perspective. You know, it, we, some people call it the Jewish gospel. Um, you know, why are there four different gospels? Uh, why four different books? You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, is that a mistake or is it in divine inspiration? Well, it's definitely not a mistake. Uh, each gospel is an inspired word of God. You know, the Holy Sp Spirit directs uh, each account. Each gospel is a unique portrait and picture of Christ. You know, each one is valuable and each one is a little bit different. Um, each, you know, they focus on different theological themes, each person. Uh, each perspective is needed and it gives us a full picture of Christ and the truth of the gospel. You know, like I said, Matthew comes um, at the story from a Jewish perspective. You know, all, of all the Gospels, it's labeled the most Jewish of the four. I don't know how you label something the most Jewish, but they did. Um, so, <clears throat> how God, he, you know, he focuses on tying the Old Testament to the New Testament. You know, how God gave us his promises, how he fulfilled all those promises through Christ. You know, he promised salvation to Israel and through them to the entire world. You know, he tells us how that has been completed in Christ. Our, you know, and our response to this revelation ends with what? The Great Commission, you know, to go into all the world and make disciples and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, I, I got to move through this quickly. <laughs> uh, and there was, I was having a really hard time. I could have probably... I, this is three or four sermons, just the first few books of Matthew, you know. So I'm going to hit you with as much info as I can uh, to get to the passage we're supposed to be focusing on this morning. You know, um, it's like Pastor Don, I've heard him say in the past, it's like drinking, uh, taking a drink from a fire hose, you know. It'll quench your thirst, but it might rip your lips off in the process. <laughs> um, so you know what? We should probably pray before our rip lips are torn off. All right. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord God, I just pray that you guard my lips this morning, God. And that your gospel is proclaimed in everything that comes out of it. God, that we are encouraged, that we're um, maybe sometimes reminded of where we might blow it. And then know that we can come to you. I know that you've made a way where it seems to be no way often. Uh, God, we just praise you. We thank you for who you are and that you're willing to come in the flesh, that you're willing to die for us and save us and do all that you did, despite of who we are. So we just thank you. We praise you. We just give you this time. Again, just guide it and direct it through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. <clears throat> Amen. 
Okay, so Matthew starts out with a genealogy of Jesus. You know, uh, when studying this week, I was looking at the genealogy and the Greek word for genealogy can be translated or transliterated uh, into English, and it's the word Genesis. Okay? Uh, Matthew focuses on the new Adam, you know, the new creation. You know, see how important this is? The Spirit moves, and through the Spirit's work, a new Adam is created. You know, he, here in Western culture, we find, you know, these genealogy parts of the Bible a bit boring. But to a Jewish audience, this was really important. You know, and it should be to us too. You know, it ties the Old Testament promises to the New Testament fulfillment, and it gives a detailed genealogy of like 41 generations, proving that Christ was the fulfillment of God's promise. You know, we forget that every name that was named in the genealogy would have been familiar to a Jewish audience. They would have known, oh yeah, I remember studying about that guy, or yeah, that was, you know, great-grandfather, whoever, whoever. And it, they would have known. It's like talking about the genealogy in our own families. You know, we, I noticed that we're awfully uh, obsessed lately with our genealogies. Why? It tells us where we come from, you know, it, all that. And same here. This was like important to keep genealogy so they, you know where you come from and the promises that have been made. You know, so they would have been familiar. They're the heroes of the faith to them. You know, if Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise, he had to be in the lineage of two of the biggest names in Jewish history. You know, he had to come from both the line of David and Abraham. You know, Abraham was promised that he would, be, he would birth a great nation and that all other nations would be blessed through his descendants, and through Christ that promise has been fulfilled. You know, through his descendants, Christ, um, all nations are blessed. You know, um, through his death, burial, and resurrection, all nations have been, can be restored. You know, David was promised that his kingdom would be a kingdom that would last forever. And one of his descendants would reign on the throne forever. You know, this anointed king and savior would restore the true kingdom and restore all of creation. You know, Christ was that descendant. And he restored the true kingdom that we all have access to if we believe in him and trust in him. You know, Matthew proclaims how God fulfilled all the promises about the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. I mean, you look, he, in Isaiah 7.14, it was proclaimed that Christ would be born of a virgin. In Micah 5.2, how, how it would take place in Bethlehem. Uh, then Jesus and his family go to Egypt to flee from Herod. Uh, all this to fill what the Lord had spoken. Out of G Egypt I will call my son. You know, that's prophesied in Hosea 11. You know, this is really something. In Hosea, God calls Israel his son. That's the, that's the words that are used in that passage. The verse in Hosea reads like this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. You know, and out of Egypt I called my son. He called all of Israel his son. Uh, if you keep reading in Hosea, the next verse says, the more I called them, the more they ran away from me. Israel was a terrible son. Now Jesus comes as the perfect son. You know, Jesus fulfilled the call of Israel to be faithful servant. You know, the righteous son who reveals God's glory and brings salvation to the ends of the earth to all nations. You know, another fun fact, the first people who worshiped Christ, who was it that was the first people that bowed down to Christ? It wasn't the Jews. It was Gentiles. Three kings, or the three wise men, right? Also know, you know, they, these Gentiles, these three wise men for, were from Arabia and Persia, also known as Babylon. Another seeming proclamation that the Babylonian exile is over. I mean, it's all that's kind of cool. So it's all nations now are involved in this story. You know, Herod kills all the male children wanting Jesus dead and fulfills the prophecy in Jeremiah 31. There shall be weeping for their children have been killed. You know, Rachel will weep. You know, Israel was called out of bondage in Egypt, and now Jesus is called out of Egypt to return to the promised land. You know, they go to Nazareth, again, to fulfill prophecy that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. 
Nazareth, this is kind of neat, Nazareth was named after uh, the promise in Isaiah 11.1. And do you know what that promise is? There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. David's father who is Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear forth fruit. You know, born in the city of David, and now he is a branch. And the, the Hebrew word for branch, I think, is netzer, Nazareth. Okay? Coming forth to all nations from the town whose name actually means branch. Now, isn't that cool? That doesn't just happen. You know, so John the Baptist comes into the picture and he fulfills Malachi 3.1. I will send a messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. He prepares the way of the Lord. You know, a, a prophecy found in Isaiah 40 uh, verse 3. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. In the desert, make straight a highway for your God. Uh, what else? Then you got the Lord speaks from heaven and says, what? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is what Israel could never be. You know, Israel was supposed to be a beloved son, but wandered away from their father, always falling, always stumbling, rebelling, worshiping other gods, and on and on the story goes. <clears throat> Israel was brought out of bondage in Egypt and went through, the waters of the went through the waters into the wilderness where they would be tested. You know, I was reading a documentary, uh, a commentary, not a documentary, by Douglas O'Donnell. This is what he said. He put it to, this kind of together better than I could. So looking at the baptism of Jesus, he said this. <clears throat> the idea moves us beyond the prominent theme of the second exodus in Matthew 1 through 4. Just as Israel was brought out of Egypt through the Red Sea and into the desert, so Jesus is brought out of Egypt, baptized in the waters, and led into the desert. Unlike righteous Israel, Jesus, as true Israel, the beloved son, does fulfill all righteousness in this three-part act, out of Egypt, through the water, into the desert. However, and moreover, through his baptism, he takes his, unri his unrighteous but repentant people through a new, final, and ultimate exodus, one out from slavery of sin. But plainly, Jesus was baptized not for his sake, but for ours. You can see that in Galatians and Corinthians. When we go down into the waters of baptism, it is the symbol of the cleansing of our sins. As the water pours over our heads, we are made clean in the sight of God. When Jesus went down into the water of the Jordan River, the opposite happened. He began to take on our sin, our dirt, all the scum of all those baptized. Whatever drop of water might have entered his mouth was the first taste of the cup of God's wrath which he would drink in full measure on the cross. Jesus, the son, the servant, was baptized to fulfill all righteousness, to carry out God's plan of sin substitution. So there's even more symbolism in the baptism. You know, continuing with the theme of going through the Red Sea into the wilderness, that was just, he just said, after the 40 years in the wilderness, they passed through a river into the promised land. You know, do you know what river they crossed? It was the Jordan River. You know, everything with Christ is the fulfillment of all that was supposed to be, but couldn't be achieved because of the fallen people. You know, through sin, the world was corrupted. Jesus, a new Joshua, right, is leading the way to the promises of God through the waters of baptism into his kingdom, into the promised land. So he's a new, you know, he's a new, he's a new Joshua. He's a new, uh, he's a new Adam. He's the head priest. He's now, and then what's like, he's also, if you, if you think about it, he's also a second Moses because when he goes out into the wilderness and all that happens, then he goes up, stands on the mount and gives the word of God. Exactly what Moses did. You know, he is all of it. You know, that's all incredible. I didn't even begin to hit everything. That's just a quick overview of the first couple of chapters of Matthew and what he's showing us. Um, God has fulfilled every promise he's ever made. You know, finally, now that we have some groundwork, uh, let's dig into the Matthew chapter 4, where we're supposed to be. So our memory verse for this week is found in Hebrews 14. So let's read um, verse... 
well, it's 15, but let's read 15 and 16, and then we can continue to Matthew 4. So, let's see, 15 and 16, or Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, a great high priest who understands temptation and helps us. <clears throat> That's encouraging. So, back to Matthew. Let's start reading the last few verses of chapter 3, starting at verse 13 and continue to verse 11 of chapter 4. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Continue verse 1. Uh, then, there it goes. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to be loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. All right. Let me get a drink. <laughs> okay, so I'm not sure how it's going to play out this morning. <laughs> um, I have some thoughts after reading about Jesus being led uh, into the wilderness and tempted by the devil. There might be some hard truths this morning, <laughs> and and with hope and encouragement. I hope that's my that's what I'm trusting. It's going to go. You know, isn't that the way God gets our attention? Helps us to understand the deep truths of what he's done and how he's fulfilled all righteousness through the work of his beloved son. You know, his son Jesus was perfect in every way, and yet he understands uh, and is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He understands the power of temptation in our lives. You know, uh, through history, over and over, he has watched his creation fall and give in to temptation and given to its power over and over again. You know, Jesus is God's perfect son. You know, the anointed one, the second Adam who has come to free us from the power of sin and death. And, and here's what I find um, interesting. He goes through the waters of baptism, the heavens open, the spirit of the Lord descends and rests on him, and a voice calls from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Um, the new Adam now spiritually baptized, filled with the Spirit, is driven into the wilderness by the same Holy Spirit. You know, I find this fascinating because the Spirit is called our comforter, right? Right? The comforter, the helper, is the one who drives him out into the wilderness. You know, what is it? You know, why does this happen this way? You know, I, I like the way this reads in the Gospel of Mark. You know, it says in Mark that he was baptized, and immediately the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. It sounds so much more serious in Mark. You know, there's, there's tension in it. You know, a battle is coming, and it's serious, and it's no joke. He's driven into battle, called to fight and to overcome. You know, the pressure's real. The seriousness is thick, and it's heavy. Tension, pressure, all of it comes 
in this, in this confrontation. Here, uh, we see the comforter comes and Jesus <clears throat> here, oh, I must have written it wrong, now spiritually baptized. So Jesus is now spiritually baptized. And now that he is filled with the spirit, there's now spiritual battle. You know, he comes out of the cool waters of the Jordan and driven out into a dry, parched, and barren wilderness. The voice of heaven just called out, this is my beloved son. And in the wilderness, the voice from hell calls out, are you really his son? So, and tries to tear him down. You know, I was thinking, you know, often in our Christian circles, we're led to believe that if we give our lives to the Lord, then everything's just going to be sunshine and roses. And we'll be showered with blessing and material wealth and health and so on and so forth. You know, and I'm not saying that's not true. And there's not truth in that. You know, God wants to bless us. And his blessings are often found, but, you know, blessings are often found when we find ourselves in the darkest places. Um, the thick of battle, when things aren't going so well. It's found when our lives seem like they're falling apart. It's a spiritual battle. It's an endurance race with lots and up and downs. You know, we have been told that if our lives are going good, we must be doing good things to deserve them. You know, and he, he is blessing us. And when our lives are going bad, we must be doing something bad. So he's cursing us. You know, we must be doing something wrong to anger God. We did something that has caused him to allow these terrible things. And that's lies and half-truths. Uh, you know, <clears throat> that can cloud our spiritual vision, vision and can cloud our understanding. Is that what it looks like for his beloved son? Does Jesus, who is the perfect and holy, does he deserve this? Right? You know, the power and strength of the Holy Spirit has been poured out on Jesus, and immediately conflict and trouble comes. You know, to be honest, you know we, we get it. One of the promises that God has given us is word is that in this life you will have trouble. It's not one of the, book, one of the promises that we throw in our promise books, you know. <laughs> um, and it's more than likely it will come after the Spirit has given, given you life and has drawn you to salvation through the work of Christ. Then trouble comes. You know, Christ is led into battle. He is tempted and, overco and overcomes and is victorious. You know, some of us may think, you know, how is it that the Bible says that Jesus, the King of Kings, can sympathize with our weakest and knows our temptation? He was sinless. How is it that he understands it? How can he possibly understand when he's never given to temptation? This is, this is a conflict that C.S. Lewis had with somebody, you know, and he under, and he, you know, he, but he understands the struggle. But the struggle, what, you know, C.S. Lewis has said, you don't understand. He, str he struggled with temptation, but he never gave in. That's the struggle. The minute you give in, the struggle's over. And that's what C.S. Lewis was talking to this guy that was, you know, like screaming at him from a podium or something. I can't remember how the story goes. And he's like, that's the foolish, most foolish thing I've ever heard. Because he, he conquered the battle. We give in and we give up. There's a big difference. That's why he understands the conflict. Because it gets bigger. When, the more you resist, the harder it gets sometimes. The battle, the battle is the strongest and the most difficult when we resist, not when we give in. You know, Jesus understands our weakness and the struggle because in every way he was tempted, just as we are. To fill, fulfill all righteousness, he withstood the devil and his lies and fought the and fought the struggles in the wilderness and stood his ground. He was the perfect son who in every way pleased his father. Jesus came to be the new Adam who kept the commandments of the Lord. You know, we were called to that calling. And when we understand that we're called sons and daughters of God, and when we decide to trust him and try to live for him, I hate to say it, but there's going to be conflict you know, when we, are, when we were outcasts and when we were going into our, you know, and giving into our sin, it was easy. You know, yes, often there were consequences for our sin, and that's when it would get our attention, but often things were easy for us. We thought everything was fine. We had what we wanted. Temptation wasn't a battle because we didn't, we just gave in. Um, 
you know, we listened to the voice from hell and we believed what he said. Did God really say? Are you sure there even is a God? You know, why not live your best life now? Why not, you know, live your truth and decide your own destiny? Giving in is not the battle. You're not, you're not trying to please God. You're not trying to do great things for the kingdom of God. We didn't even attempt to bring pleasure to God and please our Father when, before salvation came. Now that the Spirit has revealed the truth in us, and now that we've decided we want to live for our Father, that we want to please the Father and bring glory to His name, when we make that decision in our lives, then the battle begins. You know, the conflict picks up and gets real. You know, Christianity is no joke. It's a fight. You know, the battle is real. We now fight the good fight. You know, 1 Timothy uh, 6, 11 through 12 says this, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of eternal life to which you were called. So we fight the good fight and trust and believe in the one who has loved us with an everlasting love, who has bought and redeemed us from our sin, who has called us his own. We stand firm in the truth that he will never leave us or forsake us. You know, if there's a fight, it's because there's a war. You know, and a war not against flesh and blood. That's what it says in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, stand firm. You know, Satan is our enemy. And he's not dumb. You know, he's intelligent and he's sneaky. You know, there's the kingdom of heaven, and that kingdom brings life, and it brings purpose and fulfillment. It brings peace, hope, love, joy, all those things. The other kingdom is the kingdom of darkness. And the kingdom promises all that we find, all that we find in the kingdom of heaven, but it's a complete counterfeit. It's a lie. And, and in the end, that kingdom is out to kill us. To kill you and destroy you, it brings death. You're lost, you end up lonely, without hope, without love, without joy. You know, Satan rules that kingdom. And he tries to deceive us into living in that kingdom. You know, he wants us separated from our creator, and he hates the good. <clears throat> he hates the good, he hates the holy, and he hates the righteous son of God, and you know what God hates, or, or what God hates in return? The kingdom of darkness. He is holy, and the, and the creation that he loves was meant to live in his presence and feast at his table. We were meant to obey God and bring him glory. Since the beginning, that was the purpose of his creation, and his creation blew it because they listened to the other voice. They listened to the darkness and gave in to temptation and walked in sin. You know, and a holy God will not stand sin. A loving God hates sin and will not let it go unpunished. You know, when humanity gave into temptation and walked in sin, it was something terrible. It was terrible because we ignored God. And when we ignored his righteous call, we maligned his good name. That's what's so terrible about sin. When we give into it, we're basically saying we don't believe what God has called us to and what his truth is. We don't believe that keeping his commandments is what brings true fulfillment. We don't trust that his commandments and his guidance and his calling is because he loves us. We don't understand true love because we look at love through a tainted window. You know, we see love as a way to fulfill desires in our hearts and in our lives, and it's fickle and it's cheap. Um, you know, I was struggling this week with so many different emotions when I was praying about what what I was going to share as I was studying, you know, I would find myself back and forth between feelings, uh, these three sentiments and these three feelings. I felt shame here and there. Then I felt angry. 
And then I had feelings of great joy and peace. And we'd keep going back and forth between them all. And there was shame. The, the reason I felt shame is because um, I had these moments as I was studying how Jesus overcame. And he walked in holiness and righteousness. He destroyed and conquered temptation. He refused to bow down and give in. Why did that bring a feeling of shame? It brought me a feeling of shame because that was supposed to be me. That was what his creation was called for. I was called to be a son of God, and I was supposed to understand his love for me and walk in righteousness and holiness, and I failed miserably. You know, I have failed miserably over and over again. Do you, you know, do you understand? You know, he loves us, and his desire for us is to live a fruitful, incredible life. He wants, you know, he wanted to shower his love on us and cling to him and be in his presence. That's the calling on our lives, and we constantly give in to temptation, and because God is, our, is holy, our sin separates us from the fullness of all that we are and that we have in him. And it's kind of shameful. You know, 1 John 2, 1 through 6. <clears throat> My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the one that really is righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. How do we know that we've come to know him? If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. And shame came. Because I often don't walk like he walked. You know? So there's two truths in this passage, though. One truth is I'm a sinner, and I don't walk like he walks. You know, one truth, that's the one truth. He, and then he became sin who knew no, knew no sin. He paid the price for my sin. He paid the price for all our sin. That's the other truth, you know. It's wonderful, it's incredible, but it doesn't stop there. We forget that it goes on to say that we know, we understand his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, he died for us, you know. Um, go to Romans 5. I'm going to start in verse 8. But God shows his love for us that and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So, you know, if we truly understand his love for us, it should change us drastically. If we know him and understand his love, I should be a person who doesn't give in to temptation. A person who keeps his commands. If I don't do my best to keep his commands, I'm a liar and the truth isn't in me. That's why this week I was up and down with, you know, these emotions. You know, we see all these encouraging words that God loves us and dies for us. You know, go back to Romans and look at verses 6 through 8. You know, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. When we were weak and when we were ungodly, he did it. He didn't come for the ones, you know, he didn't come for the ones that were holy and justified. He came for the weak and the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us when we were weak, terrible people. He loved us so much he was willing to die for us. That's, aw that's awesome and wonderful news, right? I would be overwhelmed with gratitude and love that he poured out on me a worthless, worthless sinner who deserved death, that he would pour out his love on me. You know, uh, when, the second, that's when the second emotion would hit me. You remember what I said, the second emotion I felt? Uh, it was anger. 
And I was angry because what I see the world doing and done myself, uh, even in the church, the so-called church, what we're doing is blaspheming the name of God by cheapening our understanding and our proclamation of God's love. Because God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He gave his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Do we understand this? Propitiation is not a word we really use, right, these days. We read it, but here in Scripture, you know, we read it here in Scripture, but do we grasp what it is? Propitiation means this, the act of regaining favor or goodwill, the goodwill of God. It means to appease God. How did Jesus appease God for us? What about God was he appeasing? Appeasing. Listen, uh, he was appeasing the wrath of God. Right? The wrath of God was poured out on his son. Jesus appeased the wrath of God because of our sin. He became sin who knew no sin. You know, 1 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A holy God cannot stand for sin, and he will not abide sin. Sin must be punished. As a sinner, I deserve wrath, but instead he took my place. Jesus did. You know, it bothers me, and it stirred me up a little bit with a little bit of anger because we we're making his love and his grace cheap sometimes. We have forgotten the price that was paid for our redemption. You know, and our society is getting really, really bad. I, I guess we've always been bad, but it just feels like we have gone from crazy to utterly insane. We have started to say things about God's love that just aren't true. You know, we think that, that if God truly loves us, he'll allow us to do what we want. And that's ins insane. You know, that's the insane part is we now say that if God loves me, uh, I can do whatever I want. And not only does he allow me to do everything I want, we should celebrate it. And if you don't celebrate it, you're unloving. You know, <laughs> I'm like, what is going on? That's insanity. You know, it, it doesn't matter if it completely goes against the word of God. You know, uh, God is love. And love means he allows me to fill, fulfill all my desires. And it's blasphemy, what we're doing. We're maligning God, who God is, and we're making his holiness and his righteousness worthless. You know, the, and the world is full of this sentiment. And it's, uh, at times, I'm sorry, but it seems to be taking hold in the church at an alarming rate. We are capitulating to the sentiment of the world, and we don't even realize it. Allowing things that shouldn't, you know, that, anyway, we're just, so God doesn't, you know, what is it that we say, um, God doesn't hate sinners. He loves sinners. He just hates sin. I was just listening to this sermon that this guy preached. His name is Matt Chandler. And he was, and it was talking about this very thing. It's probably why it was hitting me square between the eyes this week. Uh, isn't this the sentiment that we often hear? Does the Bible say that? <laughs> you know, or do we see something else? You know, this is, a, this is the mystery of the gospel. And the mystery of God that yeah, we probably will never fully understand here on earth. Because God is holy. He hates sin. And I hate to tell you this, but he hates the sinner too. He says so. Over and over. You know, uh, all you have to do is look in the Psalms. And over, over again, it says this in Psalm 11.5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Psalm 106.40, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He hated his creation. You know, Psalm 5, 5 through 6, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. God hates sin and those who sin because he's holy and he's just and he can't stand for it. Those who are, are, are unrepentantly sinful will receive his wrath. In Revelation 14, 11, and, you know, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Revelation 2, 15 says, if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he's thrown into the lake of fire. What is this? 
What's going on? Am I, com you know, I'm completely running out of time. <laughs> so I, I'm, you know, I don't necessarily want to ruffle feathers, but there's no doubt that God is love. And there's also no doubt that God is holy and he's just. Because he loves us he, and has an, he has an unimaginable capacity for loves. It, he's, and it means that he equally has a capacity for wrath. You know, it's just, it's just as real and it's, it, it's completely justified. His anger is going to be poured out on anything and anyone that takes, up, takes from his glory and corrupts his creation. You know, then I'm like, is the word of God bipolar or something? You know, is God bipolar? I, I don't know. You know, it's like, that's blasphemy. I know, I'm sorry. But God hates sin and he hates the sinner. All evildoers are destined for this white hot wrath and judgment. And yet there is so much more. There's so much more that led me to the last emotion that I was feeling this week. It was a bit of uh, like this emotional roller coaster ride. The last emotion that washed over, over me this week was the emotion of great joy and peace. Now you're probably wondering, how do you end up with great joy and peace after all those thoughts? Right? Uh, you just told us that God hates sin and sinners and wrath is what we deserve and that's what sinners deserve. Yes, sinners deserve the wrath of God and God will completely be justified in pouring out his wrath on us. We deserve wrath and death, but God, you know, listen to me, I, and I hope we get this, but God, Romans 5, 8 through 11 again, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Do you get it? I mean, go to Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You know, I... It probably seems like I've completely deserted the passage of Scripture <laughs> we were looking at. So let's go back uh, and see if we can wrap this up. <clears throat> As God's creation, we're called to be righteous and holy, just like God is righteous and holy. We were called to bless the earth, and in the garden, Adam and Eve were tempted, and they believed the lies they were fed, uh, that God is not who he says he is. He's not fair. He's not just. His words can't be trusted. Go ahead, live your own truth, make your own way, be your own God. Over and over, God calls his people to come back to him. Be ye holy as I am holy. Follow me, rest in me. Over and over, we walked away. His people walked away and gave in to their own desires. So what did God do? He made a way where there was no way, where there seemed to be no way. You know, he sent his son who passed the waters into the wilderness and withstood all temptation. He did that because we couldn't do it or refuse to do it, whichever you want to, whichever way you want to go. He used Israel as an example to us all. He sent them into the wilderness and they blew it, gave in to temptation. That's why Christ quotes from Deuteronomy with, when each temptation comes. Because they were in the wilderness. That's the 40-year wilderness journey that they were in. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, and he's tempted with a desire to give into the flesh. He's hungry, and he hasn't eaten in 40 days. And Satan says, if you're the son of God, turn these rocks into bread. We know he can do it. He fed 5,000 people with bread, you know. So he quotes from Deuteronomy 8, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You know, he's taken up on a hill. Satan again, if you are the son of God, jump, prove it. 
because he, his word says his angels will save you. And Jesus quotes again from Deuteronomy 6, you shall not put the Lord the God, our God to the test. You know, then he looks over the kingdoms of the world which Satan had ruled over. I will give you all these if you worship and bow down to me. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6 again. You shall worship the Lord your God, and, and him only shall you serve. Lust of the flesh, pride of life, um, lust of the eyes. He overcame them all. You know, maybe you look at this counter as it's not a big deal, but it's a huge deal. He just didn't overcome temptation. Uh, he overcame all temptation. Just like he took all sin and he became sin who knew no sin, he took all temptation. He took your temptation, my temptation, the whole world's temptation, and he overcame it. He took it all because we couldn't bear the weight of it. You know, when temptation comes, we all, we all too often fall flat on our face. So in order to fulfill all righteousness, he went out into the desert and completed the task we were unable to complete. And that's why we have a great high priest who is touched with the feelings of our, of our infirmities and who understands our weakness, who sympathizes with our struggle. That's why in Hebrews, <clears throat> our memory verse was so great this week. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He overcame and conquered temptation and remained the high priest that we, that we can run to. He's our friend, our protector, who will never let temptation overwhelm us. Mankind fell over and over again. We fall over and again, but Jesus withstood. 1 Corinthians 10.13 uh, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. You know, God will provide what we need in times of temptation. And, we, and if we truly understand what he has done for us and how much he loves us, we will understand that his wrath is just as real and his love as his love. And we, with all those emotions that I was feeling this week, it will hit you. You know, the shame, realizing that I'm weak and give in to temptation all too often. Angry because when I give in to temptation and when the world gives in, it wrecks and destroys what he has wanted for us. It's a bad witness to his character and it's a bad witness of his love. He couldn't stand for it, and a price had to be paid, so he took our shame, and he took our sin, and he poured his wrath out on his righteous son so that we can now be called the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You know, the last emotion we grasp is the joy and peace we have because Jesus Christ has completed every work. He's fulfilled all things and has restored all things. Do we understand his love? Do we understand that he took the wrath and the punishment that we deserve? If we truly understood it, all that, shouldn't our lives be different? Shouldn't we be set apart? Shouldn't we take up our cross and follow him? Shouldn't we try our best to be holy just as he is holy? You know, not because we're earning redemption. Don't go there. You know, we're not, because we have received redemption through his atonement. Not anything that we do. You know, it says, it says, I am telling you these. I'll paraphrase it in my own words. I am telling you these things that we will be encouraged and so that we may not sin. But you know that if we do sin, there is good news. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sin and not just for my sins only, but for also for your sins and the sins of the whole world. If we claim to understand this, and if we truly have come to know him, we will keep his commandments and not give in to temptation. 
Because whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way he walked. So that's why we commune together. That's why we get together, to build each other up. Iron sharpens iron. We convince each other, and we help each other, and we take each other up, you know. And I want to walk, and I want to talk like him. I want to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous, marvelous light. And I want to be in that royal priesthood and part of his holy nation. You know, the more we press into him, the more we desire him, I'm sorry to say that at times it's going to be a fight. Temptation comes to us all, but God doesn't do the tempting. But he has provided us a way out. You know, he doesn't try to harm us, but he uses those times so that we would be humbled and understand that he has done the work for us. We're weak. He knows it. Like Paul, we can say, therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, and I am content with all those things, weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When I humble myself before a righteous and holy God, that's when strength comes. When I understand his love and I surrender to it and say, God, I am weak. I am worthless without you. I need you. And he says, come on. And when we give into that temptation, he grabs us by the scruff of our neck and says, come on, bud, let's go. Brush it off. We put ourselves in a penalty box when we, when we give in to temptation. It's not what he wants either. We don't have to pay penance for our sin. He paid the penance for our sin. So when you do fall, get up and run to him. Don't run away from him. The temptation and the testing should drive us harder towards him so that we're transformed in the same engine image from one degree of glory to another, step by step, running the race that he sets before us, we have the joy of his salvation. We understand the great love with which he has loved us. So press on, remain steadfast, let your hearts be glad, for Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness, and in him and through him, we can be righteous too. We have the righteousness of God. So, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God, we just thank you and we praise you that you call us righteous. Not because of our work, but because of your work through your son Jesus that he withstood all the temptation, that he took on all the sin, and that he has made a way for us where there seemed to be no way. And we just thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. Do not let us put it and show it in a way that doesn't actually show how big it is, how powerful it is, God. God, help us to be a people who of repentance, that when we do uh, blow it, that we run to you, God, and not from you, God. And we just thank you as we come to this table that we remember what you've done for us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.